You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Understanding Sin and Evil for Shavuot, or the Festival of Weeks. Biblically, Shavuot is the festival of the first fruits, but it is also traditionally the date of the giving of the Torah, Matan Torah, and that is what I'm going to focus on in this episode. Specifically, I'm going to talk about the idea that Torah fights sin, which is an idea that can be found throughout Second Temple literature and can actually explain specific passages in the Talmud and other sources, rabbinic sources, about fighting the Yetzirah Hara, the evil inclination. If you would like to download the source sheet, you can find it on this episode of my blog at understandingsin.com. It's available as a PDF download. By the way, I know I've been away for a while, but you can expect another episode which continues our regularly scheduled series very soon. I'll be talking about Blial and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'm also catching up on answering all your comments. So if your comment has not been answered, that doesn't mean I've forgotten you. It means I read your comment and said, ha. Huh, that's a good question. I need to take special thought to reply. So stay tuned because I'm catching up on answering all of those. So back to Shavuot and Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. Before I focus on the role of Torah in fighting sin that we see in Second Temple texts, I'd like to note that something else we see in Second Temple texts is the connection between Shavuot and Matan Torah, or more specifically, between Shavuot and the covenant between God and the Jewish people. So again, biblically, Shavuot is the festival of the first fruits. But the connection between Shavuot and Matan Torah is not only rabbinic sources. We find the connection in Jubilees. If you recall, Jubilees is not part of the Bible. It's not part of rabbinic tradition. It's a, it's a book written in the second temple period. It's part of the pseudepigrapha. And it reflects many um, non-traditional, we could say, halachic views. And it connects between Shavuot and the covenant in several places. It, uh, it dates the uh, breach between God and Noah to Shavuot, between God and Avraham, specifically the covenant in Genesis 17, where his name is changed from Avram to Avraham. So it's a brit, Tarte Mashma, where they do from both sides of the coin, because it's a covenant where he receives the commandment of circumcision. So you have brit. Um, and then uh, Shavuot in Jubilees, which again retells the story of Genesis and part of Exodus, of Breshit and part of Shemot. Uh, so Shavuot is the day of the covenant with Israel, which precedes Moshe going up to get the tablets. The date of Shavuot in Jubilees is different, though. It's the 15th of Sivan. So remember that biblically, Shavuot is not given a specific date, even if it is given one in rabbinic tradition. So in Jubilees, it's the 15th of Sivan. That's not the way rabbinic tradition works, but it's actually not that surprising because the 15th is usually the date of the start of Jewish holidays, specifically the Regalim, uh, when the moon is full. Even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, we find this connection between a covenant uh, between God and the Jewish people and Shavuot, because in in the Damascus document, specifically in two copies of the Damascus document found in K4, we're told that the annual covenant ceremony is in the third month, i.e. Sivan, the month of Shavuot. So, of course, it's also natural linguistically 
to connect between Shavuot and Covenant because Shavuah means an oath. So even though biblically it's called Shavuot because it comes at the end of seven weeks of the Omer, it's a natural connection to make between Covenant and Shavuot. Okay, so now that I've said a little regarding the status of Shavuot in Second Temple texts, let's move on to Torah versus sin. So I'm going to start uh, with some very striking uh, examples from prayers of the Second Temple period. Specifically, I'm going to look right now at Devrei HaMeorot, Words of the Luminaries. These are prayers for different days of the week, and they're called Words of the Luminaries because we know, in fact, they wrote that this is the name that's written on the other side of the scroll. So that that's apparently the name of these prayers. It's not a name that we actually, we gave the prayer. It's the name that they gave the prayer, which is interesting. It's specific to the Dead Sea community, even though it seems to reflect a wider practice because it doesn't have specifically sectarian language. So uh, it's very fragmentary. But it's it's it asks specifically of God. It says, May you implant your Torah in our heart so that we not turn from it not, straying from the right or the left. For you will heal us from madness and blindness and confusion. And then finally, and you will deliver and you will deliver or have delivered us from sinning against you. In other words, put your Torah in our hearts so that we do not sin. And see, there's no connection, special connection that needs to be made. We don't have to explain why God putting putting his Torah in our hearts will keep us from sinning. That is the natural consequence. And that's what this prayer is reflecting. Now let's move on to a really sectarian prayer, which is the Songs of the Sage, Shirei HaMaskil. And in this prayer, this is what's called an apotropaic prayer. It's a prayer that's meant to protect one from the influence of uh, evil spirits. And here we read, and it's a little bit hard here because it's it's quite fragmentary. Um Ubifi and and by his mouth, by God's mouth, Yivchad Kol Ruchot Mamzerim Lehachnia. He should frighten all the spirits of the bastards, um, the spirits of the bastards being the spirits that came out of the the uh, mating of uh, Bnei Elohim of Nota Adam in uh, Genesis 6, the Watchers. So those of you who have been listening to my series so far, you know who the bastards are. They are the descendants, the children, the spirit children of the sinning angels who mated with human women, which is such a common story told in the Second Temple period. So these spirits cause sin and we're asking God, I say we, really the the um, the sage who is saying this prayer is asking God for help against these evil spirits. And he says, for in the innards of my flesh is the foundation of, something we're missing the word, and in my body are battles. The statutes of God are in my heart and I profit from all the wonders of men. So I'm going to read that uh, in Hebrew. Ki bisari yisod, something. Ubigviati milchamot, in my body are battles. Chuke the laws of God are in my heart. 
So the idea is that why are there battles within me? Because the laws of God that are in my heart are battling with the spirits. And we have a similar uh, idea in an apotropaic prayer uh, we call 4Q incantation. It's not really an incantation, so I just call it by its number 4Q444. It's actually an apotropaic prayer, prayer meant to protect the speaker from evil, demonic influence and action. And I say it's a prayer and not an incantation because it's a prayer to God for God's help. It's not some kind of incantation that's using specific words to magically protect the person. And the speaker says, he's, he's explaining what happened. He says, as for me, because of my fear in God, he opened my mouth with his true knowledge and from his Holy Spirit, and he were missing something. And then he explains, he says, they became spirits of controversy in my bodily structure. He's apparently talking about these, these evil spirits. They became spirits of controversy, in my bodily structure, laws of God in innards of flesh. So as opposed to these spirits, right, we have um, the laws of God, right, which are in his, in his flesh, and a spirit of knowledge and understanding, truth and righteousness, God put in my heart. And then he finishes, again, we, it's fragmentary, so we're missing a piece here. He finishes saying, and strengthen yourself by the laws of God and in order to fight against the spirits of wickedness. Right? You should make yourself strong with the laws of God to fight against evil spirits. Because the laws of God will automatically help you fight against these evil spirits that are influencing you to sin. Now, it's not a surprise that not only do we see, here we see this kind of metaphysical status of the Torah in fighting sin. You have evil spirits that are influencing you to sin, and the laws of God which are within you are somehow fighting, fighting these evil spirits. Now, it's not a surprise that wisdom literature also reflects this idea, but in a different way. So let's look at some wisdom literature. Wisdom literature meaning literature like uh, like Proverbs that's meant to really talk about how important wisdom is and, and, and talks kind of in a very reasonable way. It's not going to talk so much about kind of demons and they're so scary because we're talking about, um, we're talking from a perspective of the wise person who, what is what is the best way to live your life? So let's take a look at Ben Sira. Ben Sira, who's from around uh, 200 BCE, and this is a book, uh, those of you who haven't been listening uh, to my series, this is a book from the Apocrypha, that means it was kept as holy by the Alexandrian Jewish community, and it was also, it's also been cited in, by, in the Talmud. In other words, even the uh, rabbis of, you know, even Chazal considered Ben Sira to be in some way holy, even though he's clearly not meant to be kept in the Hebrew Judean Bible. So Ben Sira says, and this is um, this we find in the Greek and in the Syriac. We don't actually have the Hebrew of this specific passage. It says, he who keeps the law gains mastery over the object of his thought. Uh, the Greek is, there is enoematos, and the Syriac is yatsre. So it seems that he who keeps the law gains mastery over his yetzer, right, his inclination. And consummation of the fear of the Lord is wisdom. So 
it seems that what Ben Sphere is actually saying is if you keep the law, you will gain mastery over your yetzer, um, over your evil inclination. Let's move on to 4th Maccabees, another wisdom work from the Second Temple period. Now, when God fashioned human beings, he planted in them their passions and habits. But at the same time, he enthroned the mind among the senses as a sacred governor over them all. And to this mind, he gave the law. The one who adopts a way of life in accordance with it will rule a kingdom that is temperate, just, good, and courageous. I'm going to repeat that. At the same time, he enthroned the mind among the senses as a sacred governor over them all, and to this mind, he gave the law. In other words, God planted in you passions and habits, and passions certainly implies that, you know, it's kind of also bad passions, but he gave you the ability to govern it, right, by giving you the law. The fact that God gave you the law allows you to control your passions and habits. Now, this idea is really fleshed out in a work from right after the destruction of the Second Temple, and that work is 4th Ezra. Actually, the, the idea is not fleshed out. The idea is really fought with. It's, it's, it's opposed by the hero of 4th Ezra, who is Ezra. Uh, a little bit about the book of 4th Ezra. The book of 4th Ezra was written as a way apparently to deal with the problems and the, the theological problems of the destruction of the second temple. Namely, how could God do this to us? We may have sinned, but we didn't sin that much. Why has this happened? And in order to deal with this tragedy, the author of fourth Ezra writes a book in which Ezra has to deal with the destruction of the first temple. And yes, the chronology does not work. In other words, how could Ezra be around during the destruction of the first temple? It doesn't seem to bother the author much, though. So you have Ezra, who is reacting to the destruction of the first temple in the book as a way for the author to deal with his own reaction to the second temple's destruction. And in this uh, work, one of the big uh, arguments that Ezra has, Ezra has an argument with an angel. And Ezra essentially says, uh, the angel is kind of reflecting common wisdom. The angel says, look, God may have, have uh, given you, uh, um, you know, given you the inclination to sin, but he also gave you, or gave you the evil, an evil heart, but he gave you the laws. So you really have no excuse. And Ezra kind of argues with that. Um, he's saying that it, it's not enough. He's arguing with what is already a common idea. So let's let's read inside. Ezra says, You rescued Jacob's descendants from Egypt and led them to Mount Sinai. There you made the heavens bow down. He's speaking, he's speaking obviously about God. There, there you made the heavens bow down, shook the earth, moved the world. You made the depths shudder and convulsed the whole creation. Your glory passed through the four gates of fire and earthquake, wind and frost, in order to give the commandments of the law to the Israelites, the race of Jacob, in order to give them the Torah. Yet you did not take away from them their evil heart so that the Torah might bring forth fruit in them. For the first Adam burdened with an evil heart transgressed and was overcome as were also all who were descended from him. Thus the disease became permanent. The Torah was in the people's heart along with the evil root, but what was good departed and the evil remained. 
And what's interesting here in Fourth Ezra, there there are actually a few things that are interesting here. One is that this is one of the um, few references we have to what we call like original sin, the idea that people have an evil heart in them because Adam sinned. Or here it actually um, sounds like Adam had the heart already, had the evil heart already. He was created with the evil heart and then he sinned. It says, for the first Adam burdened with an evil heart transgressed and was overcome. Uh, By the way, this idea of original sin, we don't, we barely see it at all from in texts written while the second temple was standing. But when, as, but in texts that are dealing with the destruction of the second temple, it's actually already quite prominent. So we know this idea was around in the second temple period, both fourth, fourth Ezra and another book, second Baruch, both address this idea as something that everyone, everyone is familiar with. Fourth Ezra uses the idea to explain sin and second Baruch actually argues with the idea. So, Ezra is saying to the angel, he's saying, God gave us the Torah. Actually, in this passage, he's not talking to the angel. He's talking to God. He's saying, God, you gave, you gave Israel the Torah, and, but you also gave them the evil heart, and you didn't take away the evil heart so that the Torah might bring forth fruit in them. So it didn't help that you gave them the Torah. That wasn't enough. Okay, why why does he need to say this? The answer is we see it when the angel responds to him because the angel is like, "Hey, God, God gave you the Torah. That should have been enough." He says, "For this reason, therefore, this is the angel. He's explaining why people are punished when they sin, even though they're sinning because they have an evil heart." He says, "For this reason, therefore, those who dwell on earth shall be tormented, because though they had understanding, they committed iniquity." And though they received the commandments, they did not keep them. And though they obtained the law, they dealt unfaithfully with what they received. In other words, the angel is hinting, at the very least hinting, you got the law that should have been enough for you to kind of keep it. I mean, you didn't really need more than the law to see this is what you need to keep. So it doesn't matter that you have an evil heart, you get punished, you know, because you got the law. So that, that we see in, in Second Temple periods, so we see prayers that reflect this idea that the Torah should be enough to fight demonic influence to sin. The Torah is within me and it fights this demonic influence. I, I can still ask God for help, but, but I, the battles within me are caused by the Torah that's in me on the one hand, fighting with these evil spirits. And we also have this idea in wisdom literature that the Torah, the law, is what helps you control the evil inclination. Now let's move on to Chazal, to the rabbis, and let's take a look at this idea that we see also, of course, in the Talmud. So let's start with the Talmud with Kedushin 30b. Our rabbis taught visemtem samtam. The Talmud here is explaining the verse in uh, Dvarim Yud Aleph uh, Yud Chet which is Deuteronomy 1118, and you should place these words of mine on your hearts. And then it uh, it continues uh, with the verse that becomes the uh, main proof text for tefillin. In other words, it says, Samtem, you should place my words. And Samtem, the rabbis are changing it to Samtam. Samtam, a perfect remedy. So the Talmud explains, this may be compared to a man who struck his son a strong blow and then put a plaster on his wound, saying to him, 
my son, as long as this plaster, it's like a Band-Aid, right? As long as this plaster is on your wound, you can eat and drink at will and bathe in hot or cold water without fear. But if you remove it, it will break out into sores. Even so did the Holy One, blessed be he, speak unto Israel. My children, I created the evil inclination, but I also created the Torah as its antidote. If you occupy yourselves with the Torah, you will not be delivered into his hand. For it is said, if you do well, shall you not be exalted? But if you do not occupy yourselves with the Torah, you shall be delivered into his hand. For it is written, sin couches at the door. Sin couches at the door is, is referring to the uh, oracle spoken to Cain, Lefeta Chatat And it continues saying, tishukato, that to you is sin's desire. Ve'im, um, shadlon, you, can, you can rule over him. So the the Gemara here, the Talmud, goes on to explain that he is altogether preoccupied with you, essentially to make you sin, for it is said, and unto you shall be his desire. Yet if you will, you can rule over him, for it is said, and you shall rule over him. Okay, what is going on here in this passage? So there are certain, uh, there are several important aspects. And for those of you who are listening to this series as a series, we're going to come back to the evil inclination later, and we're going to address this once again. But the idea is God God giving us the evil inclination is like someone striking a blow. In other words, that wound is part of the person, okay? The evil inclination is part of us, is what this passage is saying. However, just because you have an evil, evil inclination that's part of you doesn't mean you have to suffer from it. It doesn't mean you have to listen to it. Here's a Band-Aid. What's the Band-Aid? The Band-Aid is the Torah, and you have to keep it on all the time. If you occupy yourself with the Torah, then sin is not going to get you. You're not going to, the evil inclination won't get you, quote unquote. You're not going to sin. But you have to study the Torah. That's your band-aid that helps you deal with this wound that is part of you. Okay, so you can handle sin, but you just need the Torah. And later on in the same place in the Talmud, and by the way, I in the source sheet, you have the original so you can, uh, f- so for those of you who don't like the English, you know, you can, you can check in the source sheet. Um, the school of Rabbi Ishmael taught, my son, if this repulsive wretch assails you, lead him to the schoolhouse. Now, the schoolhouse is not really the right, right translation. It's Beit HaMidrash, right? The study hall. So if this minuval, if this wretch uh, assails you, in pagabacha minuvalze, moshchehu lebeit HaMidrash, Lead him to the Beit Midrash, to the study hall. If he is of stone, he will dissolve. Oh, so sorry. Who is this repulsive wretch? Who is this minuval? The minuval that we're speaking about here is the evil inclination. Now, in uh, those of you who are less familiar with rabbinic texts, once you're in the Talmud, the evil inclination is almost is almost always, not always actually, is frequently personified. It's frequently treated like it is, um, like it has kind of wills and desires of its own, almost like it's a demon. So if, if this repulsive wretch assails you, if the evil inclination assails you, lead him to the Beit Midrash. If he is of stone, he will dissolve. If iron, he will shiver into fragments. For it is said, is not my word at like fire? Hello, hello, code... And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. This is a quote from uh, from Yirmiyahu, from Jeremiah 23. If he is of stone, he will dissolve. For it is written, 
Ho, everyone that thirsts, cut you to the waters. That's from Ishayo from Isaiah. And it is said the waters were the stones. What is water? Water, everyone knows water is the water of life. The water of life is Torah. So clearly if it says anyone who's thirsty, go to water, go, you know, drink from the water, it means learn Torah. And if it says the waters wear down the stones, the water wears down the stones, it must mean the Torah wears down sin. Okay. Again, we have this idea in here uh, where we're talking about the school of Rabbi Ishmael's teaching, take the evil inclination to the Beit Midrash. Learning Torah will automatically, automatically allow you to control the evil inclination, to fight the evil inclination. And I'll tell you the truth. This passage for me was always a little bit confusing. Like, why is this so automatic? And it helps for me personally to have this background from the Second Temple period. This is, oh, okay, there's this general idea in the Second Temple period already that Torah automatically fights sin on some kind of metaphysical level. And that's what's being reflected here in the passage. So moving right along to some other sources. In, um, in Baba Batra 16a, uh, Rava said, Job sought to exculpate the whole world. He to kind of get the whole world off the hook. He said, sovereign, sovereign of the universe, you have created the ox with cloven hooves and you've created the ass with whole hooves. In other words, you, can't, you can eat an ox, but you can't eat a donkey. The donkey is an impure animal. Uh, you have created the Garden of Eden and you've created Gehinom, hell. You've created righteous men and you've created wicked men and who can prevent you? In other words, what is Eov, what is Job supposedly saying? He's saying whether someone is wicked or righteous really depends on how God created them. So how, in that case, can you be held responsible for sin? His companions answered him. That's the quote from Job 15. Yea, you do away with fear and restrained devotion before God. If God created the evil inclination, he also created the Torah as its antidote. Note that the creating the Torah as its antidote, that's not in Job, right? That's, that's the Gemara here. That's the Talmud. So here we're saying, okay, Eov wanted to make a statement that would get the whole world off the hook from sin, saying, God, it's all from you, right? And his, his, friend, his companion said, you can't do that. Um, you can't, you're, what you're going to do then is no one's going to keep anything and no one's, no one's going to, uh, fear God because people say, oh no, I I can't be held responsible for my sin. And the answer that the answer to this problem of God created people wicked or good is that if God created the evil inclination, he also created the Torah as its antidote. So God gave you the law, just like the angel said to Ezra, if you remember in fourth Ezra, the angel said, God gave you the law and you still didn't keep it. So now you're held responsible for sins. So they're saying a very similar thing here. So what have we seen in this little talk? Uh, we've seen this idea that the Torah fights sin. The Torah fights sin on a metaphysical level, and we saw that in, in the prayers from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It fights sin on a more logical level. We saw that in wisdom literature, where, where, hey, God gave you the law as a way for you to control your evil inclination. 
And then we see this idea reflected later in the Talmud when we're talking about an evil inclination, sometimes in an almost personified way, you know, drag him to the Beit Midrash, drag him to the study hall. And also in terms of, uh, of the kind of logical argument where someone might argue in a deterministic way, well, you know, if I tend to like to do this sin, that's because of, of God. And the answer is no, God gave you the law. And we can understand this from a logical level because on the one hand, if God gives you the law to keep, that kind of means you have free will. But also the idea on a wisdom level is that God gave you rules for controlling yourself, right? But that becomes, but that it maintains its kind of metaphysical status of a way to fight sin because why would going to the Beit Midrash to learn Torah, why would that automatically fight your evil inclination? The answer is the Torah has some kind of power, right, to fight sin. So I hope you enjoyed this talk. It's the styles are slightly different than what I normally give in this series because uh, it's a little bit more like uh, a shield uh, a class I would give for Shavuot because I have, in fact, given this class on Shavuot. And I hope that many of you managed to hear it before Shavuot and enjoyed it and that it gave you a little food for thought. So I hope to get the next episode in our normal series that's going to be talking about a Blial in the Dead Sea Scrolls early next week or say mid next week and uh, and we'll be back on track. I am looking forward to your comments on this talk. Uh, please let me know how you liked it and you can download the source sheet from my blog at understandingsin.com at, at this episode. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to speaking with you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.